0: From Chicago, welcome to 3Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry.
1: There are companies in the world that build electrochemical machining machines, mm-hmm. equipment. Uh, they're Very all cheap, in right? Yeah, yeah. Cheapest one was at the time half a million dollars, $600,000, something like that. And then they just went up from there. And so I really, just because I didn't have that money, built our own machine from scratch.
0: That was Daniel Harrington. Daniel is the founder and CEO of Voxel Innovations, a manufacturing company based out of Raleigh, North Carolina. Voxel is a pioneer in pulsed electrochemical machining. efficient, accurate, and specialized approach to machining high-quality metal components for medical, aerospace, energy, and other industries. Before starting his own company, Daniel worked as a professional race car driver in both the Indy Pro and Grand Am series. He spent several years with the Advanced Research Project Agency for Energy, ARPA, in Washington, D.C., and worked as an independent advanced manufacturing consultant. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher.
2: Daniel, welcome to the show today. Um, excited for the conversation. We're going to be talking in gory detail about post processing for three D printing. So, um, why don't we get started? Why don't you kind of share a little bit about, about your beginnings? Where are you from? Kind of where, what's kind of the the origin story for kind of where you ended up today?
1: Sure. Yeah, so I um, I went to NC State for undergrad in mechanical engineering, and actually at the time I was uh, racing cars full-time, uh, so while I was in school, and so I sort of had this uh, early career of a, as a race car driver. That, How'd you um, get into that? Yeah, I, I started with a driving school with my dad back in when I was 16, you know, convinced him to take me to driving school with him for his birthday, <laughs> and then became sort of a hobby on the weekend with him. And then uh, enough people, I won enough races. People thought I should sort of think about it more seriously and was able to climb the ranks, uh, mostly focused on open wheel cars, like indie cars. Um, didn't quite make it to Indy car proper, like Indy 500, but we raced uh, in a series called Indy Lights, which raced at all their tracks right before their races. It was a feeder series to the IndyCar car series. Uh, Yeah, so I did that in in sports car racing, but basically I drive anything people would let me. (laughs) If I got the chance, I'd jump in a car and drive. Uh, But um, yeah, so I I, I was doing that in undergraduate. uh, And then after uh, undergraduate degree, I was more or less doing that full time until the recession hit and uh, raising money to go car racing was uh, more difficult, let's say, then. (laughs) Uh, So I, I knew I had this passion for manufacturing and energy and uh, seeing them, something physical be made uh, I didn't really know how to direct that interest and so I went to graduate school at Duke and uh, got a degree in engineering management which is kind of like an MBA for engineers you know shorter compressed um, less heavy on the finance more heavy on the sort of innovation management or uh, what have you and from there I went to work at the Department of Energy in a group called ARPA-E, which is kind of like DARPA for energy projects. So they funded advanced research projects all over the map, you know, um, new natural gas powered vehicles, turbine cycles, new ways to manufacture magnets. And that was a, an eye-opening experience for me. You know, I, I think I was immediately the dumbest person in the room there were um, <laughs> you doing like? Were
2: you evaluating like proposals or like project managing? Like yeah, so things they, they've lying. got a
1: group there. They call it tech to market, That's really just making sure that the projects they fund have a pathway and a eye towards commercialization. Okay. They don't just die as a research project and go nowhere. And so you know, it's a small piece of the overall project budget, but really critical to make sure that those projects succeed. And so I was often helping them think through their plans for how they might commercialize technology, but as important with that, trying to make connections to other people in industry that could help them succeed uh, once they got through the RPE funding phase. Uh, But through that process, I got to go, I had to, and enjoyed reading all the technical proposals and sort of diving into the technology piece of it, Uh, and was really enamored by how many great ideas there were out there for energy innovations. Uh, But after doing that for a year, year and a half or so, I sort of wanted to be doing it myself. (laughs) Uh, But the other thing I realized is that manufacturing can play a really critical role there. It's kind of an overlooked element of these innovations. Often manufacturing or new uh, capability will enable some new innovation that uh, people couldn't have done 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and more than that, you know, once you get so. Since I was focused on the commercialization commercialization side, you can have a great idea all day long, but if it costs too much money, it's never gonna fly. And so, manufacturing can be a really critical piece of that, or design for manufacturability to making those you know, cool ideas turn into reality. And so. Uh, I left RPE to essentially do something on my own. I wasn't sure what it was going to be. I, I didn't even intend to start a business. You know, I just wanted to be out in industry trying to help make something innovative in the manufacturing, energy, whatever nexus. Um, it was unclear at the time. That <laughs> um, so you just quit and like did something else. Yeah, yeah. I had a sort of friend of a friend who had a business in uh, New Jersey called Metem, and they are now part of GE Power and they drill cooling holes in gas turbine blades. And I started doing some work for them, actually trying to understand how added manufacturing might impact their business. And so that was really my first, you know, I learned more about it while I was at RPE, but I really got invested in it doing this consulting work for this company and trying to think about what its implications might be in gas turbine engines uh, which um, turned out there are a lot of them, uh, maybe not affecting them directly, but you know, it was a, a very educational opportunity for me. Uh, and then was also introduced the technology or the sort of general technology that they worked with, which is electrochemical machining. So that's uh, dissolving metal with electricity and chemistry instead of printing it together, building up additively. Um, and that really, you know, Additive is really cool. Uh, I I was quite enamored with that technology, but by the time I started getting excited about it, uh, in many ways, the horse that left the stable, there were lots of companies working pretty feverishly on technology there, making additive printers, applying it in really unique ways. Um, It would have been fun to jump in there too, but I saw this electrochemical machine process as a technology that was really underutilized given the benefits it had, and part of that was because the technology is very hard. There's sort of this interplay with chemistry and electricity and material science that is not that common in manufacturing. You know, people are usually used to melting things or cutting things, not necessarily dissolving them. Um, and so that sort of appealed to me as a um, you know what seemed like a niche process right now might have some room to grow to be something not so niche and, and could supplant other processes or aid others, you know, particularly additive. Since I looked into it early on, one of our refrains I kept hearing was surface finish is a challenge for fatigue life and all these other issues. So um, the common comment was, I'm not sure what this electrochemical chemical machine is you're doing, but can you fix my surface finish problems? You know, and so I thought, well, maybe there's something here. Uh, so the so a short version of that is, After being exposed to additive and electrochemical machining, I thought there was an opportunity to build a business around really just electrochemical machining with additive being a potential outlet or or, uh, industry for us. Um, Originally, I was supposed to be with a couple of other partners and, you know, life things happened with those partners and uh, end up with me just starting the business on my own Uh, really just fell into it. Like I said, I, I, did not set out to start a business. I just got excited about the technology and the potential here and, um, you know, felt like it'd be wrong to not start a business after all the time and effort. I so I went into thinking about it.
2: And so what does it, what does it mean to just, I mean, I, I started, uh, so I've been in the issues. I started a business by kind of myself. So what did that look like? Did you have like, a? were you doing this like getting parts from people and doing it yourself in a lab somewhere were you kind of contracting out what how did how did that look did you raise money what what was the yeah. path?
1: yeah it's um, so we there, there are companies in the world that build electrochemical machining machines mm-hmm. equipment um, they're Very all cheap in right <laughs> yeah yeah cheapest one was at the time half a million dollars six hundred thousand yeah. dollars something like that and then they just went up from there and so I really, just because I didn't have that money, built our own machine from scratch and it was very crude and basic and didn't have much functionality, but you had to learn every single aspect about how the process works and what details matter, which ones don't. And so I, I sort of spent money that I had in savings and um, and got some money from friends and family basically raised that initial round uh, of convertible debt from friends and family to try and help me build equipment and for six or 12 months it was just me in a 800 square foot sort of rented uh, flex warehouse space and sit there design the machine and well, we started using Onshape very early on and uh, design the machine when I build it I figured I have taught myself how to weld, welded the frame to it, bought some big granite slab to turn into components of it, found linear motors and axes and other things, found custom power supplies, really cobbled this thing together, found friends that knew about uh, industrial wastewater treatment and could help, you know, they had just finished a uh, PhD or postdoc and knew enough to be dangerous to help me uh, cobble my way through that and and we're also starving, so they were cheap. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, basically pinched my pennies through Uh, building a piece of equipment that could do some sort of electrochemical machining. Um, And at the time I had some ideas on customers, but the thing that I've learned and continue to learn is as a small company with one or two people, it's pretty hard to get the attention of a GE or Rolls-Royce or Pratt & Whitney. You know, they think of you as researchers, not as manufacturers, contract manufacturers, you know. And that was our vision all along: is that we wanted to build a contract manufacturing operation that we don't just do research and turn over what we learn about the process to someone else. We want to actually make parts in volume for these uh, companies in medical and aerospace. So we had some early customers that sort of were interested to learn more about how the process worked and see how it behaved on their material system or whatever. Um, and so we did some of those jobs, you know, didn't necessarily go anywhere, but gave us an opportunity to get a little bit of money coming in the door, but mostly a chance to learn, figure out how to interact with them. Um, and then over time, you know, I, I hired a, a great first employee who helped, helped me finish out building the machine and, and take on some new projects. And, um, and then we started adding, we had our first electrochemist, uh, sort of fresh out of school, who turned out to be really sharp and helped us develop more technology and how we're heading with our business. We also started. You know, we realized that the, getting into contract manufacturing as a couple-person company it was going to be pretty difficult, especially given that our technology has a lot of value in these um, high-value applications, or applications where someone might die if your part fails. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, we sort of realized that the the timescale for us to get involved in contract manufacturing for a part of a jet engine or an implantable medical device was gonna be pretty long. So we kept those relationships going, but then started doing more work through SBIR funding or government funded research. Those of you that are unaware, it's non-dilutive funding that allows you to develop your technology, uh, build a sort of an IP base that you can then protect if you got some money to go file patents, and or build know-how uh, but also sort of keep an application in mind you know often they're targeted towards some need out in industry um, so those have been very valuable to us to grow our business grow the technology and but also you know the point of those is to solve a problem out in the world not just sort of do research for research sake and uh, and that's you know, sort of manufacturing in general is often that way. You know, it's very application focused. and So that helped keep us grounded that we were always sort of thinking you know, we're responding to these solicitations with an idea about how we can solve some broader problem out in industry. Uh, maybe it's part of a jet engine or a, a rocket engine, you know, for NASA or uh, some new space flight thing for the Air Force, uh, detector for the Navy, you know. It, they're often and actually additive finishing became a a topic and is still a topic for lots of these agencies. Uh, So those early years kind of consisted of a smattering of early commercial opportunities and and government funded SBIR research. So when, what, what years were these? That would have been, I think we won our first contract in um, 2017. So we, I formally started the business 2015, but that all that means is I found a website and a name. <laughs> um, I think I hired my first employee mid 2016 and maybe in 2017 or so we, uh, we won our first, first SBIR might've been even beginning at 2018. Now I think about it, I, we had some uh, failed attempts early on, which were educational, but, uh, yeah. So uh, a couple years down the road and really we were just surviving off the um, sort of convertible debt that we raised and a little bit of customer money that we get in the door here and there.
2: Um, For those who don't haven't gotten down the startup path. So what's, what's convertible debt? What does that, what does that mean?
1: Yeah. So convertible debt is basically it, it's, it is debt. It's a form of debt. So in theory you could repay the debt to the lender uh, before the end of the term, but more commonly there it's used as just a, um, intermediary step between no money in the door to raising some sort of round through a formal uh, series of investors or venture capital or whatever it is. And the basic idea is that these people are um, giving you money, uh, but when you go and raise a round, that money they've given you as debt will get converted into equity at a preferred rate. So it it helps offset the risk they put in their money at a very early stage to you.
2: Sure, awesome. And so, kind of, what does the machine look like? What did what what did the like first iteration or even today is like? For um, I'm guessing most people who listen to to this show might be their first time hearing about this process. So can you kind of paint a, a visual picture of of what this looks like?
1: Sure. So there are three major components the machine. Uh, The one that will be easiest to relate to is the machining cell, the envelope. And that kind of looks like a sinker EDM machine or a CNC machine or even a 3D printer for that matter. It's just an area with a bed and some axis above it or next to it. And all it's doing is moving your electrode close to your workpiece. So you load a part in, load a tool in and move it towards each other while you're spraying electrolyte in between the two. Uh, so that's sort of the simplest thing to envision. and it can take lots of different forms. Um, some of these are designed to make really big parts. Some are making really small parts. The other two pieces of major equipment for this is a, is a big power supply. So our process is a low voltage, high amperage application. And so we are often running five to 50 volts of potential, but thousands of amps of current. And uh, so these are, are not common power supplies. And we're also, in our case, we're using pulsed uh, power. So we, we might run square wave uh, voltage pulses that could be milliseconds to microseconds in width. And so these power supplies are pretty specialized. There really aren't that many people in the world that make them. Uh, and then there's a wastewater treatment system effectively. So our process uses a saltwater solution as it's working fluid. Uh, so, EDM uses dielectric, you can use water or kerosene. Uh, I should say EDM is electrical discharge machining for those of you that don't know. And we do electrochemical machining, ECM, often confused, but they are different. Uh, and so, in, in our process, our working fluid is usually a salt water solution. And it can literally be water and table salt, sodium chloride, or sodium nitrate, or something else. And so that is, it's kind of just like a small municipal industrial wastewater treatment system where we uh, supply clean electrolyte to our cell and pull away dirty electrolyte that has dissolved metal, dissolved iron oxides or nickel oxides and hydroxides, whatever the metal is we're cutting. And then we filter the waste out, do some chemical balancing, chemical additions uh, change pH and connectivity and some of those variables. And, and it's a closed loop system And uh, that there is a, um, an outlet where we can pull off the concentrated metal sludge that comes off the machine, so basically the waste. So instead of chips that might come off a CNC machine, we create a, a brown goo that we get to pull away and, and send off to get uh, recycled. So those are the three main components of the system.
2: And so what materials can this work on? I mean, you've mentioned metals and, and some of the oxides yeah. that come off, but like what kind uh, of what's uh, go through the process of like, what would be a good candidate part or material or what it, would the process do?
1: Sure. So from a material standpoint, it has to be conductive. Basically that means a metal. Yeah. <laughs> if it is metal and it's conductive, we've got a good shot at it. Things that become borderline or something like semiconductor, which is conductive, but uh, either is very uh, not very conductive, so you might need a ton of voltage to pass current through that. Um, uh, yeah, so and that's the most common c- cases in a semiconductors. So we need really highly doped semiconductors, and we can machine those, but it's it's kind of rare. So mostly metals is what we deal with, and within metals, generally ECM can machine lots of materials. The ones that have historically been more challenging are refractory metals or valve metals. So think of titanium, tungsten, niobium, um, molybdenum, rhenium, those sorts of things. Uh, We actually are doing some more research now on machining those materials with a different sort of set of parameters we use in our process. And that's proving to be successful. And so um, really it's a combination of the material and the electrolyte and the type of power you're applying that, determine success in a material system. Uh, there are obviously some more complex materials too that are sort of interesting for us. So things like metal matrix composites or something that's non-homogeneous. Um, a good example of that that's been around for a long time is aluminum, silicon carbide mixtures, AlSiC. They use them in heat exchange, heat sinks and other things. Um, those have can have large silicon carbide particles in the matrix, and that silicon carbide is inert to our process, so we don't dissolve it. Uh, but we will dissolve happily dissolve the aluminum that's around it, and so we okay. can sort of free the silicon carbide particles. Um, if those particles are really big, it could be problematic for us. If they're small, it kind of doesn't matter; it doesn't affect us. We actually machine faster because now we're not uh, having to dissolve the silicon carbide; it's just being um, liberated. Yeah. So, this is a long way of saying it, is that when you have non homogenous materials or materials with a large fraction, volume fraction of something that's non conductive, you need to pay a little bit more attention with our process. You know, uh, something that's got strands of carbon fiber will we went through it, it would be a real challenge for us. We just hit those strands and not break them, not break them down. Uh, so, homogenous metals, the great best thing for us. And when they do have other elements in them, like they're small or sort of micrometer scale or less, that's best. And so when you
2: look, like, kind of in the context of, of additive, when do you work on the part? Like, so if all metals, like metal parts are uh, usually are, they're always welded to a build plate. Like are yeah. they freed when you work on them or are they on the build plate?
1: They could be both. Um, Generally, though, they're off the build plate. We find that most people build, uh, you know, well, everyone has their own build strategies, but a lot of them build them on support structures up off the build plate and then break them off the support structures uh, or wire the EDM them off the build plate. It's just a little bit of a cleaner process. Um, uh, particularly if they're going to reuse that build plate, you know, there's someone that's doing a lot of additive work. They don't really want to ship you a build plate uh, necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> um, So we're typically, we're taking it after that, after they've gone through their heat treatment steps. Um, You know, they can make it as hard as they want. Um, It doesn't really matter for us. Uh, So we're kind of the end of the line. We've been working on additive applications and the area that we fit most cleanly in additive thus far has been um, one or two areas. One, you know, there are surface finish problems in additive. Sometimes it's just for appearance sake. Sometimes it's for fatigue life issues. Sometimes it's the roughness is so bad that you can't actually inspect it doing um, dye penetrant inspection. You can't see if there's cracks in the material. Uh, And from what I've seen, the biggest cause of these is is down skin surfaces or surfaces that are supported by support structures. Uh, So they might not break off cleanly at the surface. sort of what I call macro scale features uh, on the additive print. And that's where our process is the most effective is taking those sort of extra rough features and machining them down uh, pretty aggressively, uh, but without having to apply force to the process. So this electrochemical machine process is completely non-contact and non-thermal. So we don't have to touch the surface with the cutting tool That means if you've got a delicate 3D print with a bunch of thin-walled features, we can clean up those surfaces without distorting that geometry. Um, And there are other some printing processes, whether it's electron beam melting or maybe some of the free-form powder deposition processes that print with thicker layer lines, with more rougher surfaces. uh, And and those really, they just need... uh, post-processing just to for them to be functional in many cases um and so we find value in, in working on those applications they've got really bad sport structure remnants really bad surface roughness if you're just gonna sort of make the surface glossier for appearance sake there are lots of vibratory finishing electro polishing methods that are are cheaper than our process would be but if you really care about the precision geometry or or maybe targeting a particular surface—that's where our process could be valuable. You know, it's got plenty of limitations, but it, when you think about this in the context of volume production, where you're not just making one or five printed parts, but you're making a thousand of them or ten thousand of them a year, you know, like people are doing in aviation or medical, you know, our process starts to make more sense because you can think about designing tooling for it and, and really getting through these parts much more, more quickly with our process. And
2: it has the business still kind of remained the same idea where you want to be kind of that contract manufacturer to do this, or do you want to make machines as well?
1: Um, We would like to make, have more of a focus beyond contract manufacturing, but we do have more and more people asking us about building machines. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's um, interesting in many cases and could be a good way to grow the business, but it also, present some challenges namely when you develop a process that's complicated like ours there's a lot of know-how that you can't or don't want to write down I should say Um, (laughs) and if you sell a machine to someone that's going to do anything other than push a button and make a part you would end up selling some of your IP and know-how to them and, and essentially making a competitor at the same time and so we are happy to and have been talking with a number of people about building sort of turnkey systems for them, but that's really, they, they see our process as a way to make a part that's better, faster, cheaper. They don't really care how it's made, or uh, they just want it sort of in their supply chain or on their production floor. So they really just need a way to push a button um, and, and they could sort of care less about how it works as long as it does work. So those applications are more interesting to us in terms of the machine sales. But you know, uh, I think the contract manufacturing piece still makes a lot of sense because we're continuing to develop new innovations with technology. And if we can be still be in that loop of uh, making parts for those customers, that allows us to apply new innovations and efficiencies and improvements to make their part better, cheaper, faster over time, rather than sort of turning that entirely over to them. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like additive machines many people are leasing these now or they, they you can lease equipment for some amount of time or they've got routine software updates or some sort of recurring plan along those lines you know when the technology is changing rapidly you don't necessarily want to be stuck with the same piece of equipment and st- same limited processes you know, I, I, I don't know that our process is changing quite as fast as additive but we personally at you know here at voxel are making a number of strides and, it sort of be a shame for a customer to lose out on that efficiency that we've uh, figured out here. Um, and plus many customers don't actually want to deal with the waste treatment side of things, right? So we take care of all that stuff. We get rid of the waste for them, manage all the regular regulatory pieces around that. Um, and so it can be just an easier solution to send it to us.
2: So how do customers find you? Like, can you just tell kind of like, what's a typical customer story or I mean, go into any detail that you can that's not
1: IP yeah. sensitive? I mean, just maybe generically. I, I think our first customer, it took me two years to get to the right person to sign a a Grito quote. You know, <laughs> um, it hasn't gotten, it's not that bad anymore. But when you deal with big companies and often our process, like I said, we focus on, what you call um, parts with high engineering content, you know, or they've got a, a trade-off between performance and cost. So I like to think of these parts as if you could make it more efficient or better, they'd pay you more for that. And you know, that's not the case necessarily for a, um, you know, a cell phone case. You know, if you can, they mostly just care about making it cheaper and we do have some customers like that, but largely in many cases, they want to make up this part better in some way. And that's kind of how we enter the conversation. Um, so those often are, in, are larger businesses too. Uh, you know, they're in aviation or medical or some energy application. Uh, and so it can take a long time to go find the right people in those things in the right silos. And so that had, for me, as it meant networking through trade shows and conferences, uh, really just walking up to people that are speaking at these technical events and, um, uh, slightly pestering them, but mostly trying to learn about what their problems are in manufacturing. Um, I do a lot of work just on my own trying to understand how other components are made and what their challenges are, uh, sort of this cycle of research through online sources, Google, academic journal articles, whatever, and then go call people, You know, literally cold call people that might be you know, the easiest to talk to are those in academia that maybe have worked with industry before. They might have some insight, can give you point you in the right direction a little bit more and then go try and find the technical experts at the companies and say, understand what their manufacturing challenges are. Um, so those have been, for the first four years or three years, that's the only way I met any customers. It's just, it just took lots of effort, you know, cold emails, cold phone calls, lots of no's, lots of non-responses. Um, in the last two years or so we've tried to do a much better job of getting our website up to speed so we've put more educational content on there we've done a better job marketing what we do and trying to put articles out in industry magazines or um, do podcasts like this honestly you know help people understand what it is that the process even exists and also how it works and how it could be used for them so I've I'm constantly amazed that people that come to us that have a part and an industry that I've never heard of. And sometimes it's a material I've never heard of. And I would never find that, you know, just going and looking for it. And so that sort of inbound requests have grown a bunch in the last two years or so. And that's been critical to us. It's, it makes it a lot easier on our side. We can sort of respond to some of these things. And also we learn about new industries and applications constantly that we didn't know anything about. And that's uh, that's both exciting and and valuable for our business. Awesome. And how big is the team now? So we've got eight people now and uh, running out of space and probably need some more people here soon. But um, yeah, the the space we're in in terms of hardware, capital equipment, you know, it's time and money and intensive. And so I never expected that we would sort of in four years, grow to hundred million dollars and sell the business. You know, that was never my plan, never thought it'd be realistic. And uh, so we're on a, a slower path, but now have been around long enough to be involved in longer term projects with bigger customers and clients, you know, many times these components, you know, apart for jet engine, they might start working on the design and manufacturing of it five or eight years before it ever flies. So you've got to sort of be around at least that long just to even be in the conversation with some of these applications. That's
2: awesome. And so what are you looking forward to kind of in the coming months and in the next year? What's, what's on the radar? What's on the, the growth map?
1: Yeah. A um, couple things. We're building some more equipment that should have more capacity to work on. We've had some customers come to us with much larger parts that we couldn't fit physically until we are, expanding the envelope so we can work on those. We've got some interesting um, government research grants that allow us to further our technology and really help solve problems at the fundamental level instead of just being reactionary to a need and what we have. Uh, In particular, we're working a lot on trying to uh, de-risk and lower the upfront cost of this process. So often it can be kind of expensive to make the electrode design the electrode go test it in the process figure out what sort of geometry you created and then iterate off of that uh, dealing with how you flow electrolyte and what parameters you run it can be quite iterative because the electrochemical process is so interactive all the variables or sort of influence each other um, so trial and error has sort of been the historical best way to do that but we are working now on more sort of Automation and simulation techniques to try and reduce those barriers, both to make it cheaper and easier for us to get to the first iteration, but also need fewer iterations because there's more intelligence built into the machines. So we've been uh, starting to work more on that side of things, uh, which not only helps you in the development, but in production too. Now you've got better tools to keep track of how the process is evolving and and it's in the in the right window when you're making. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of parts, you know, those are sort of critical pieces for us. So uh, those are all exciting things, coupled with some interesting customer projects I can't really discuss, but uh, they're all coming down the pipeline. Awesome. Cool. Well, if
2: people want to find out more information or they have a part or want to see more about the process, where would you point them?
1: Yeah, to our website uh, would be the best place to go. And that is voxelinnovations.com, uh, V as in Victor, O-X-E-L innovations with an S and there's a section on there called education. It's really just a bunch of blog posts. where We try and explain about how you apply our process at certain areas where it works and where it doesn't comparisons to other manufacturing processes. You know, if you know, CNC machining, it'll compare how this is similar and different to that and where it's got strengths and weaknesses or EDM or photochemical etching. Uh, so I, I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, I often tell people, If you are working on design of component and you don't know all the manufacturing processes that are out there, it'd be easy to miss an improved design something that's got a a thinner wall or more contoured to it or something that you didn't know was possible or there's a way to make that realistically. So even just a broader understanding of all the manufacturing processes available to you can help you design better parts and give you more options when you get to the manufacturing phase.
2: Awesome. Cool. Well, I appreciate the time. Uh, hopefully everyone goes and checks it out and hope to see you in person at one of these uh, trade shows or maybe five apart. I'll send it your way.
1: Yeah. Great. Thank you, Mike. All right. Take care. Thanks.